I wish we could have shown you the video for this song. It's really incredible. It shows the passing of hundreds and thousands and millions and billions of years and what happens over the course of all of this time as the earth grows and then dies and galaxies grow and die and black holes finally die and the universe is coming to an end and at the end it says time becomes meaningless. It's really an incredible video and I love that video and as a matter of fact this is my favorite song. Now I know some people may say that it's a little gruesome to have a favorite song that begins everyone you love is going to die but my chaplain background, working with people at end of life, comes out in full force when I hear it. I've spent a good bit of time with people as they grapple with the fact that they themselves and the people they love are going to die. And let me tell you, in those holy moments when people are facing their own deaths or the deaths of someone they love, Almost everything retracts except that sense of love. Whether it's played out in anger and fear or acceptance and peace. Many times as I've been working with people in and out of the hospital, I've heard theists say, I can't imagine how people face death or grief without God. I get where they're coming from. It's a comfort for those who believe in a compassionate and loving God to trust that they or their loved ones are transitioning from life into an unknown that still holds love. I remember being with a veteran just before he died who was having visions of God and the loud despair of his wife could not break his peace. But here's the other side. Those who believe in a harsh and judgmental God fear what's going to happen to them or their beloveds when their souls are weighed. One time, a student from an extremely conservative Christian group so extreme that she was eventually excommunicated for taking my course on world religions, called me crying. Her boyfriend had died a few days before, and the beliefs of her church told her that he was beyond redemption because he wasn't a Christian. Could he still go to heaven, Professor? Could he? She wailed broken by the thought that this person she loved so much might be tortured for all eternity. I talked with her for a long time, exploring her beliefs and talking about a loving and compassionate God. And one time I had to give chaplain care to the medical staff in the hospital because there was a patient causing them moral distress she was clearly in terrible, terrible pain and was going to die within a few days, but demanded that they continue to give her every treatment possible. 
when I sat with her and spoke with her about why she was holding on so desperately, she told me she was so terrified of the punishment she was sure was waiting for her on the other side of death that she would take any torturous medical procedure just to put off eternal punishment by one more day. Yeah. So here's what I've learned. The people, religious or not, who are scared and anxious as they approach death hadn't come to grips with their lives or with the idea of death. I found that many avowed atheists were terrified of the judgment from the God they didn't believe in. And the people, religious or not, who were tranquil as they approached death were at peace. Peace with their lives, with whatever their conception of the afterlife was, heaven, reincarnation, nothingness, and with the people they were leaving behind. So peace, peace and love in the here and now, that's what prepares us for grief, for death, because everyone you love is gonna die. Uh, everyone you love is going to die, but so is everything. Don't cry, says the song. So Buddhist traditions, and I'm, I'm thinking here, I've, I've read something by uh, Pima Chodron, the American Buddhist teacher, um, have advice about paying attention to reality. And Chodron says, as people who want to live a good, full, unrestricted, adventurous, real kind of life. There is concrete instruction we can follow. See what is, see what is. And what is is that we all are going to die and everyone and everything we love will die. Ernest Hemingway says all stories if continued far enough end in death and he is no true story teller that would keep that from you. So it seems that people who are wise, who think about this, um, find that it's important to think about this, to think about death, to come up against that realization that we and everyone we love is going to die. And I know a lot of you heard a lot from me last time I was here about Ross Gay and this book, Inciting Joy, but there's more. <laughs> there's more. He has a chapter about laughter, and I like this because um, this book is a book about joy, and it talks a lot about death, and it talks a lot about hurt and pain, um, but for him, they're not separate. They're all part of what is. So for example, he says this about laughter. Remember how they policed our laughter at school, how at football practice, how at church, how at that, um, well, yeah, remember? Remember how they did this? Because they know laughter is a contagion. Those who laugh are its vectors, and one of laughter's qualities is that it can draw us together by reminding us of the breath we share, which also reminds us, or can, especially when we fall off our chairs, when we gasp for air, how we sometimes do, 
of the dying we share, which is a pretty big thing to share when you think about it, maybe one of the biggest. And if we share that, why not share everything else? It could be epidemic, this sharing, which is why they try to nip it in the bud. So I love this book. You should read it. But it's surprising to me um, that there's, that he said laughter can remind us of dying. We lose our breath, we, we fall out of our chairs. He says later in a footnote, it's just stuck at the bottom of, of page 172, it's even note number two. He says, there really is nothing more interesting about us than that we die. I think I really think that. Wow, that's kind of surprising. That's the most interesting thing about human beings. We often tend to say, oh yeah, of course we all die, and we put that away. And he kind of like dives into it. We all die, and that's, that's really interesting, the fact that we all die. Um, this is a guy who wrote not one, but two books about delight. Some of you have heard me preach out of that book, too, a few years ago. And then this book about joy. And he, I have to admit, I have, he's a poet first. <laughs> I haven't read his poetry. It's probably got a lot of joy and delight in it, too. And he's the one here who's saying, Let, let's get into death. Let's think about grief. And he says, this is, I've been hearing about grief all my life, it seems like. And he says, everything is connected. And here's what grief does. He's, he defines grief as the metabolization of change. When someone dies, it's not just the loss of that person that we're living with. It's also the fact that getting up in the morning is different, or going to school and seeing them is different, or going to work and they're not there. There are, you know, things are different. Many, many things, if, and if it's somebody close to you that you are used to having in many parts of your life, there's lots of difference every which where you go. Recently, we had to take down some trees in, my, in our yard, and I, every time, we have old trees. We have a, yard with big, big trees in Nashville, they're, they're, and you know, they're hackberries, so every now and then they have to go. And I grieve every time we have to take out a tree. The light is different coming in my windows. The shade on the deck is not there where it was anymore. The, the tree, the walking through the yard is different. Looking at the yard is different. And this is just a tree, just a tree. I say that as if I don't like trees. I love trees. Um, so grief. Grief is the process of metabolizing change. And what we realize as we're encountering all these things that change, when we lose something as, as important and pervasive as a person or as not human as a tree, it's bigger and older than I am, but so I'm not gonna call it unimportant, but um, no matter the, the scale of the change that comes with the loss, it shows us that we are in fact connected. That nothing or no one who is does not have an impact, is not connected somewhere, does not cause a gap when it is not there. So the process of grief also brings us to the fact of connection. And now you see why I love Ross Joy, those of you who know me. 
Everything's connected, everything, everything. And so grief also brings us to joy. And grief is universal. We all grieve, sometimes, somehow. Our culture sees grief as a threat because we have this idea of the rugged individual, you know, who, of course, doesn't need anyone else. So grief is not supposed to happen, and if it does, you're supposed to get over it as fast as possible. And yes, okay, we're going to recognize that it's important, but here's the six steps, and once you're through them, you're done. And those of us who have actually walked through significant griefs know that no. And even small griefs can be significant, you know, depending on who you And they're just different, and they don't fall nicely into steps, and we end up falling apart. And Ross says that falling apart can feel like death itself. And if we are willing to be open to the fact that that falling apart is also part of our connection, we fall apart into each other. And he says maybe that, maybe another name for that is joy. The being together. We find joy. So grief and joy are not opposites. In fact, they exist together and only together. Ross talks about rhizomatic care and mycelial tethers. This, you know, he uses these um, organic, biological, um, I'm not gonna read because I talked about them too much, but the, these biological um, metaphors for how we are all connected to each other and cared and held up back and forth across time in all dimensions, that rhizomatic bit is kind of, they go all over and up and down and sideways. And, um, he sees that. Um, as human beings, we are all connected to each other, but also organically. We're connected to the stars and the rocks, too. Um, so everything's going to end. And again, I'm really sorry, as, as Cynthia said, that we didn't have a way to show you the video, because it shows one of the lines in the song, if you couldn't hear it, was, there's really nothing sadder than watching Saturn lose its rings. And it shows you know, a simulation of Saturn's rings, kind of, and everything. The universe, all of this, it's all one, one big living thing, really. It started and it will, it will end, too, just like the smallest insects, just like us. So we're going to go on with more lyrics from the song, but I thought maybe we might want to do that body prayer again. So you can sit if you like. If you want to stand up, you can do that, too. But let's do it. Source of life, thank you for making me flexible and resilient. May I keep what serves me and let go of that which does not serve me. Thank you for life. So lyric time again. Everything you fear is gonna end. All your hate and hurt blows to the wind. Now, I've always wanted to do things right. Like, had this fear of getting it wrong. It wasn't that I thought that there would be judgment or punishment or anything like that for doing something wrong. 
more like a fear that I'd miss out on being who I was supposed to be if I didn't, you know, always make the right decisions. So it took me a really long time to break out of this. Perfectly broken out of it now, never have that happen, right? Hmm. But one of the points along the way was when I decided to take a job, and I kid you not, based on the ultimate heat death of the universe. After all, I reasoned, if everything is going to come to an end anyway, then what I decide about this job can't really be all that important. <laughs> really, that's how I was thinking. Oddly, it was the idea of the end, the really big, really final end that freed me to be able to start. To let a decision be just a decision rather than having some big cosmic ramifications. There's freedom in knowing that things are going to end. This relationship I hate or this job I love or this climate change that I fear, whatever. Everything will at some point and in some way draw to its clothes. Every friendship, Unitarian Universalism, humanity as a species, but also every bully, every way we have of harming each other, all our ways of destroying the environment. Some sooner, some later, some not in our lifetimes, but everything, everything will reach its point of finitude and will blow with the wind. What I get from this is summed up by the Jewish teaching from the Mishnah that you are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to refrain from it. We are situated between birth and death, as we heard in our story. Not just our own births and deaths, but the births and deaths of all we love and hate all that harms and helps. And we must not get so stuck in the harm that we forget to help. Every religion teaches that we see and experience the fear and the hate and the hurt and keep moving forward anyway. Right? The religions may have different understandings of the causes of the pain, of the tragedy, but they all keep coming back around to say, don't turn your face away just because it's easier. Discern with compassion, even toward what you fear and hate. Lean into love. When we can wrap our head around the idea of endings, wrap our head around it rather than fearing them, we can move toward all of this.
lyric time again. All the saints and sinners are the same. We're blessed and we obliterate. So, following on this fear of getting things wrong, which by the way, I think is very common. By the way, I, I learned something about Cynthia here. She got out of that, that, that grip of perfection and having to make the right decisions by appeal to Jewish teachings and philosophical principles about finitude. My way out was the band Alabama. All I really got to do is live and die, but I'm in a hurry and don't know why. <laughs> that was my route out. <laughs> but still, we're left with everything lives, everything dies, and in between, there's living. Richard Rohr, who is a um, contemporary um, contemplative teacher, he's a Christian, um, he says, all great spirituality is what we do with our pain. I add on to that, but really, really bad, damaging spirituality is also about what we do with our pain, sometimes. Um, someone that I read recently, and I'm sorry I couldn't find where I got this, but said, every human act is an expression of love or a cry for love. And I think that's profound. Um, so we as human beings have this profound capacity for tranquility and peace and knowing that we are connected and we are also vulnerable to pain, to suffering, to grief, to loss. And we do different things with all of that. We are liable even with the best of intentions and pretty well developed good character we are really liable to hurt each other, unknowingly and sometimes knowingly. And everything is going to end. Everything. We, we resist this idea that everything, everything comes from who we are as people and from the fact that we're connected. We resist the idea that we can make serious errors trying to address our pain, trying to find comfort in the face of suffering, trying to resist being connected because our culture says, no, everything's about saleable units of things and making profit on them. I think um, some of you here have heard me quote from Amanda Stern's memoir, Little Panic, the terrible truth that binds us all is fear that there's a single, unattainable, correct way to be human. So we're all afraid of this, even though we can look around and see that you're doing it really differently from the way you are, or the way you are, or the way I am. And still we think, somehow, we're trained to look for, oh, what's the best way? Okay, so yeah, that was pretty generous, what she did, but really it would have been even better if she, you know, or, or but, oh, but look what, well, look what they did, that was, you know, and we're, we're always, we're ranking, and we're, you know, and even when we can get out of 
the mode of judging every little thing, we still tend very often, and maybe it's because we're, you know, our bodies are bilateral, we tend to put everything on binaries. So you have to be this or that. You're wrong or right, that's the really hard one. But even when we manage to slip out of the wrong and right, or the perfect or, you know, the perfect and the more perfect, um, we still tend to sort things into two categories. Our brains are bicameral, you know, and our bodies walk. And last night I came up with the theory that maybe if we all spent more time dancing, which involves a lot of crossing those halves of ourselves, maybe that would be better. I don't know. Sounds like more fun anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so, um, there are so many different kinds of forms of that perfection that, and that striving for perfection. And we put things on the binary and then I think we often rotate that binary 90 degrees and then we have hierarchy. And you know, and, and that happens really, really easily with us and it's, we're finding as a culture, even as, we, even as we are deciding to undo both the hierarchicalism and the binary, that it's really, really hard to do. And so the idea of the end of everything, the finitude of it all, really does free us. And we have to say, yes, everything we see is part of that in-between. It's part of us together. It's part of the connection. And in the end, in living with it, um, in leaning into each other, in recognizing our vulnerabilities and the help we give each other, we actually understand that we belong to each other. That we are connected across generations, across histories, across experiences, um, and not just with human beings, but with other animals, with the plants, with the earth itself. We all have a beginning and an ending and an in-between. We truly belong to each other. And I was tempted to read you more out of Gay Ross's book, but I'm not. I'm just going to leave you. And, and you just have to believe me that a lot of his thought is, is coming in, into my head and being changed here. Um, but I, I, what I want to leave you with is the idea that belonging to each other always and inevitably brings change and grief. But there really is no sweeter thing. And lyric time again, and we're gonna set you up. We brought you a little, a treat, a ritual of sorts. That yeah. Um, the last lyric in the song is, I think, is, so don't you let the moment pass you by. There really ain't no sadder thing there really ain't no sweeter thing. So we have chocolate-covered pretzels. There is a nice, a very, very much prettier basket full of goodies on my couch at home. So props to Cynthia, who ran to JJ's, because I left the basket at home. So sorry if you have issues with nuts or uh, wheat or things like that. They're, they're chocolate-covered pretzels made by Hershey's. So please be careful if you need to be. Um, what we would like to do is have you, um, we're going to pass this around the room. 
while we're passing, if you want to, you might share with someone sitting nearby you some of the sadness and sweetness in your life, just while you're waiting for the basket. When the basket gets to you, if you would please offer it to the person next to you. And with these words, may your sadness always be wrapped in sweetness. Do you all have that? Should we practice? May your sadness always be wrapped in sweetness. 